680 News Time 706. 680 News Time 903. 680 News Time 420. 680 News Time 410. 680 News Time 540. 680 News Time 418. 680 News Time is now 30 years later. June 7th, 1993 is when 680 News first went on the air. During those 30 years, listeners have been given time checks about 30 times an hour. That means news anchors have provided almost 8 million time checks. 680 News Time. 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 From the beginning of radio, one of the programming bedrocks has been the time check. Telling listeners the time has always been useful. Even today, with all the clocks in cars and on watches and phones, hearing a time check on the radio is still useful. It's like having a friend say, hey, did you know it's already 9 o'clock? It can literally be a wake-up call that reminds us we have to get a move on. Back in 1993, there was a wake-up call for CFTR Radio. It was a music radio station on the AM dial, and listenership was declining, mostly because the sound quality for music was so much better on the FM dial. Here's an example of AM radio. 680 CFTR Toronto, 15,000 watts in AM stereo. It's 347. This is Mike Cooper with Amazulu. Now, here's an example of FM radio. 98.1 CHFI. Toronto's perfect music mix. Time was running out for music on the AM dial. Listeners had other options to hear their favorite songs and listen to their favorite radio personalities in much better audio quality on FM radio. After playing new music and golden oldies for decades, the focus for AM radio was shifting from ratings to survival. AM music programmers were hearing echoes of a Bob Dylan song they'd been playing for 30 years. Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. the times we are In 1993, the times were a-changing. A number of AM radio companies in Toronto were considering making the change from music programming to an all-news format. The starting gun had been fired, the race was on, and there could only be one winner. This is the story of 680 News, the first local all-news radio station in Toronto and Canada. It's now called City News 680, and we'll talk more about that new name in later episodes. And along with the time checks, some of the most important elements for a news station, of course, are traffic and weather. 680 News Time 801. Rogers Wireless, traffic and weather together on the ones. Brought to you by Horizon Utilities. Let's get airborne. Daryl Dahmer, Skymaster One. No problems. Highway 401 westbound is jammed through his... In 30 years of traffic coverage, City News 680 has provided more than one and a half million traffic reports for listeners. So as a tribute to all those reports, we've included a traffic reference in the title of this podcast. Welcome to City News 680, 30 years in the rearview mirror. Hello, I'm Scott Metcalf, and I was lucky enough to be the news director at 680 News for 18 years, from 2003 to 2021. In this podcast, City News 680, 30 years in the rearview mirror, We'll be looking back on the first three decades of all news radio at 680 on the AM dial in Toronto. Much like the news wheel you hear on air with traffic and weather together on the ones and business at 26 and 56, the podcast is divided into segments of time. 
There'll be six episodes, and each one will cover a span of five years. One thing to point out at the beginning is that the station started out as 680 News, but later the name changed to City News 680. The story behind that change will be covered in a later episode. The first day on air for 680 News was June 7, 1993. But the story of 680 on the AM dial begins about 30 years before then. Ted Rogers started the first FM radio station in Canada when he put CHFI on the air in 1960. It was a bit of a gamble at the time because very few people had FM radios. But Ted was confident listeners would want them as soon as they heard the much better audio quality of music on the FM dial. Ted knew he needed a companion AM station because in the early 1960s, the AM dial was the real moneymaker. It was not easy to get a spot on the AM band. The first dial position available was at 1540, which is not a very good signal. The lower you go on the AM dial, the stronger the signal. Ted looked for other options and set his sights on 680. It was a big, booming signal that went for miles and miles. It was a jewel of the AM dial. In the early 1960s, Ted was able to get the 680 signal for the Toronto area, but to allow the station to broadcast at full power, he had to get two other stations to move away from the 680 frequency. One of the stations was CHLO in St. Thomas near London, Ontario. He helped pay for CHLO to move away from 680, but he ran into a serious snag because another station on 680 was WRVM in Rochester, New York, and the owner there had no intention of changing. To allow the Toronto station to broadcast at full power, 24 hours a day, Ted had to find a way to get the Rochester station to move off the 680 frequency. In his book, which is titled Relentless, Ted told the story of how he managed to get that done. Here's 680's John Stahl reading the passage from that book in Ted's own words. Because of the reach of Rochester's WRVM, also at 680 on the dial, we couldn't broadcast at full power during the day unless that station moved to another frequency. The owner of WRVM was a Detroit businessman named Milton Maltz, who would later go on to found both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum in Cleveland and the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I called Maltz, but he would not entertain the idea of moving the station, and he eventually stopped taking my calls. But a broadcast convention was coming up in Washington, and I found out from his assistant which flight Maltz would be on. He had a stopover in Cleveland. So I headed down there and booked a ticket on Maltz's flight to Washington. I asked the attendant if I could sit beside my pal Milton, and she said that seat was available. If you don't ask, you don't get, as I have learned time and time again. When I boarded the plane and sat down beside Maltz, He went berserk, saying, you're hounding me, Rogers, you're hounding me. I can't go anywhere without you calling, and now you sit down beside me on an airplane. At this point, he actually took off his shoe and pounded it on the armrest of his seat like Nikita Khrushchev at the United Nations. But before we landed in Washington, I had won him over. He said my persistence was driving him crazy, and he would move the Rochester station on the dial if I paid for the switch 
and bought him the land that he would need for new transmitters. I gladly did so. That was 680's John Stahl reading the words of Ted Rogers from the book called Relentless. One of the main reasons that Ted Rogers was relentless goes back to his childhood. His father was an inventor and had a very successful radio business. In the early 1900s, radios were powered by batteries, but those batteries were filled with chemicals that could leak and cause burns, damage furniture, and people just generally didn't trust them and didn't want them in their homes. There were inventors around the world trying to figure out a way to make an electric radio, but what held them back was the early electric radios had too much noise and static and not a clear signal. In the 1920s, Ted's father invented something that changed all of that. He invented a radio tube that filtered out the static, and finally, electric radios became all the rage. It was a world-changing invention. A few years later, Ted's father started a radio station in Toronto called CFRB. 9RB testing. That's the sound of some of the first on-air testing of the station in 1927. And the call letters, CFRB, had a special meaning to Ted Rogers Sr., Under federal government broadcasting rules, there are only certain letters that can be used to name a radio station. They're referred to as call letters. Most Canadian stations start with the letter C. There are a few second letters allowed, including F, like in CFTR, or the letter H, like in CHFI. For the last two letters, you can pretty much choose anything from the alphabet. Ted's father chose the call letters CFRB, which he imagined stood for Canada's first Rogers batteryless. It just shows you how much it meant for people to get rid of those leaky, dangerous batteries that the radio company used the word batteryless. They could have used electric, but it was better marketing to call it batteryless. There is audio of the first testing that was done for CFRB, and we'll hear that in a minute. It's included in a program about the history of the station. That CFRB testing audio we heard earlier is part of that program from 1957. Now, as a point of interest, that program was produced to mark the 30th anniversary of CFRB. So it's fitting it's included in this podcast about the 30th anniversary of 680 News. It helps to connect the dots of almost 100 years of radio for the Rogers family and the torch that was passed from father to son. So here now is part of the program recorded in 1957 that begins with the actual testing of CFRB in 1927. 9RB testing. 9RB testing, 16 minutes after midnight Eastern Standard Time, January the 29th, 1927. Yes, RB testing. That was all for the time, except curious letters in the newspapers. What is this RB testing? By February 19th of 27, most everyone knew about the new radio station designed and operated by the young electrical genius E.S. Ted Rogers, for already thousands of listeners enjoyed the reliable performance of his Rogers batteryless AC receiving set, which had revolutionized the medium. CFRB went on to become one of the most popular radio stations in Toronto and Canada. 
But then in 1939, tragedy struck for the Rogers family. Ted's father died suddenly at the young age of 38. After that, the family lost control of the businesses that he'd built up, including CFRB. As a boy, Ted Rogers pledged to his mother that he would build them back up again. In 2008, just a few months before his death, Ted Rogers was asked about the influence of his father in an interview with morning show co-host and the managing editor of 680 News, Paul Cook. Now, your dad, of course, was an inventor and an entrepreneur, and he he came up with the the, the plug-in radio, a a major invention at the time, and he was also a workaholic, much like you are. He, He died at an early age, 38, you were just five. What impact did that have on your life? Well, I guess, uh, you know, everything, because if he'd lived, I might have been just a spoiled brat, and uh, uh, I wouldn't have the drive and ambition that I have had during my lifetime to win back his name and reputation. As Ted Rogers rebuilt the family business started by his father, he called one of his radio stations CFTR. While his father's station, CFRB, stood for Canada's first Rogers Batteryless, Ted imagined that his station, CFTR, stood for Canada's first Ted Rogers, as a tribute to his father. CFTR became one of the top music stations in Toronto through the 1970s and 80s. There were a lot of talented announcers who worked at the station over the years. Here's a voice you may recognize from 1973. CFTR, here we go. I'll take the fifth call now at 870-9181 to instantly rip me off for two tickets to the Labatt's Can-Am and Mosport. Hi, everybody. Hi, Arch. I'm on the bill. That announcer was Rick Allen. But that was just his on-air name back in 1973. He eventually found success in television and movies using his real name, Rick Moranis. For many years, CFTR was the financial engine that helped support CHFI. But by the early 1990s, the better audio quality on the FM dial was drawing more and more listeners, while the music audience was moving away from the AM stations. So, with music listeners moving toward FM and away from AM, The turntables had turned. Radio programmers in Toronto realized they had to move away from music on the AM dial. In the United States, a number of AM stations were having success with the all-news format. So the race was on to be the first to move to that format in Toronto. One of those leading the race toward the all-news format was John Hinnon. In the race to be the first to launch an all-news radio station in Toronto, one of those leading the charge for Rogers was John Hinnon. John had pretty much done it all in the broadcast business, including newscasting, sportscasting, play-by-play, business reporting, and other things on his way to becoming the vice president of news. John had a reputation as a creative and strong leader and journalist. He also has a great sense of humor. We did this interview at his kitchen table. I was tentatively using a new recorder that had been loaned to me by the radio station. As I fumbled around with the mic check, John couldn't resist some good-natured ribbing. There we go. Yeah, okay. I'm good. You? (coughs) Hello, testing one, two, three. Good, nice level. Okay. I'm just going to start off sort of from what I wrote here. Okay. And I may just ignore your questions at this point. You should. Right. Thanks a lot, John. So, with the mic check out of the way, we started the interview. 
All right, John. So you have a binder from the start of 680 News. Actually, it was just before the start of 680 News. And you have memos in there that show just before the launch, a lot of decisions still had to be made. So tell us about some of the decision-making leading up to the launching of the all-news format. Well, it took a long time. I mean, quite frankly, in 91, 92, we were looking at, I was VP of News at CHFI. And every week I met with Tony Viner, who was my boss. And Tony oversaw media and and reported Ted constantly. And um, so as 91, 92 started to roll on, we could see that the revenue numbers on CFTR as a top 40 radio station were we're starting to decline and declining significantly. Um, so back in early 92, uh, we were talking briefly about the idea of, of, you know, looking at the U.S. experience and seeing how successful some of the AM stations there had been. And the ones that were most successful were all news stations. Winds in New York, WCBS uh, in New York as well, BBM in Chicago, and the list goes on. Um, so eventually... The board um, and Tony talked a little bit about this idea, and uh, come September of 92, uh, Tony came to me and also our VP of Finance at the time to put together sort of a very brief overview of what uh, goes on in New York, how WINS operates, their revenue numbers and things like that. So we put together a pretty brief report. He took it to the board, Tony did, and uh, the board said, "That's a, it's a really interesting idea, but we're going to stick with uh, Top 40 Music for at least another five years. This was after, you know, Chum had gone away from uh, being a top 40 station, gone into oldies and things like that. So things are changing in the marketplace already. So anyway, come January of 93, you know, I was looking at the oldies format. So I made a suggestion that maybe we look at a program of uh, news and oldies. So we do news in the morning and afternoon drive and oldies during the other day parts. And as I was sitting down and discussing this with uh, Sandy Sanderson, who was the program director at CFTR at the time, and uh, he said, well, there's another meeting going on shortly. And so um, he informed me about this meeting that, took, that was taking place in January, February, another board meeting, where Tony and uh, Phil Lynn decided they were going to look at the whole problem of, of AM news or AM, AM radio again, what to do with AM radio. And so uh, Tony had this other stuff still in his back pocket from what we talked about before. And so they called Ted Rogers up and said, Ted, come to the room. And so Ted says, well, already, let's look at this, but let's put together a more detailed plan. So shortly thereafter, like a day or so after that meeting, uh, I met with Tony and a few others. Um, we had a fellow who was looking into sales who was uh, with All Canada at the time, which is a national sales agency. John Gorman was the gentleman's name who was in sales. He believed that, that the station could maybe break even after 70 years. But um, the feeling was if we said that to Ted, he might say, yeah, it's a little too long. So, so uh, anyway, Tony told Ted and the board that it would be five years. And um, by the way, as an aside, we actually started making money in year four. So, so that was okay. Yeah, that was certainly okay. Uh, and, and again, getting back to your binder of notes and things from 1993, there are articles from newspapers uh, when the change was announced that you saved in there. Uh, in the Toronto Star, the reporter Greg Quill called it one of the best concealed strategic moves in Canadian radio history. Uh, pretty impressive. So how did you keep it so quiet? Well, I mean, it, we obviously were all sworn to secrecy. Um, and... We really, as I say, kept it to a, a need-to-know basis. Uh, so there was nobody else at CFTR that knew. The only people we brought in initially would have been, well, we brought an outside sales guy in who, who knew radio, 
who could oversee the sales part of it. Um, and we brought in somebody from engineering because obviously there was engineering concerns and things like that because we had to do stuff with the equipment and change things up. Um, but we really kept it to maybe, I would say, and our consultants, we had a couple of consultants working with us at the time. I bet you there were no more than 10 people that were involved directly at, at the initial stage. I mean, I have to look at the list, but I bet you there was no more than that. It might even be less. Um, and and then only once we we got to a certain stage when you had to bring somebody else in, you know, we would do that from a sales perspective. Um, but um, HR, we had to bring in later. We brought HR in quite late, actually, because, you know, they had to get around to letting a whole bunch of announcers go. Great announcers, too, I might add. We had some really good people. Um, so that was painful to see. But, uh, you know, we had to, to bring those people into the equation and into the, into the loop. And so we did it as we felt it was necessary. And uh, so, you know, I th- I'm still proud of that, how we did that. I'm still proud of the fact that uh, nobody let it leak anywhere. And, um, you know, there was never a hint that this was going to happen. We originally thought we would launch a little later, but we were getting some rumbles that uh, 640 was looking at going all news. And so uh, we wanted to we wanted to be first in because our feeling is that first in has a better chance of being successful. And, and as it turned out, I mean, the announcers we had, I mean, two of them, Jesse and Gene, who were our morning show at the time, ended up being hired at 640. So they moved to 640. And the first commercial we ever purchased was on 640 to welcome Jesse and Gene to 640 and thank them for their time at 680. So I thought that that worked out well. And it was interesting to see the reaction from the, the other folks in radio. Uh, Roy Hennessy, who was running CFRB at the time, put out a really nice letter wishing us well, even though nobody thought we had a chance of making this thing work. Uh, I mean, it was one of those things that people said, this will never work in Toronto. It's kind of been tried before with CKO, but CKO was still a lot different from what we're doing. Uh, And we made our focus, you know, uh, being local and focusing, which CKO was oftentimes trying to do some national stuff as well. We focused on trying to be local, focused on traffic and weather. And then the news blocks is what we fit in between the traffic and weather. It was our, our, their job was to really make sure people hung around for the next traffic and weather report. So that's kind of how we thought this was going to work. And we also looked at it differently from terms of, of how people listen to radio. Uh, I mean, 680 News is foreground listening, so people listen for something specifically. With music stations, it's oftentimes background, and you can have it on for long periods of time. But with ours, you know, it gets repetitive. Uh, so we always used to say check back three, four, five times a day because we knew that it was not the kind of station people would listen to probably all day long. Some did, but... <laughs> Yeah, fortunately, some people did listen a lot. John, as you know, CFTR meant a lot to Ted Rogers because radio was his first business. And it also meant a lot to him because the family lost CFRB, the radio station, and other businesses as well when his father died. So by the time CFTR changed over to all news, the Rogers company had expanded to cable and wireless. It was a huge company. But Ted was still directly involved in the decision to move 680 to all news because Radio was just so important to him. And his goal was always to try and buy back CFRB. That was originally one of his goals. And it wasn't until much later, I would say 2005 or seven, whatever, once 680 became like, you know, a major behemoth with, from, from a, both a ratings and a revenue standpoint, that he said to me, he said, well, 
I don't think I have to buy CFRB anymore. So, so he backed off on that. But you know what? If it wasn't for Ted Rogers, this would not have happened. I mean, you know, that was a great thing about having an owner like that who could make those decisions. There wasn't a, you know, a big conglomerate behind him telling him what to do. And, you know, he didn't care if he lost some money the first few years. He didn't care about that. It was minus, not a big deal. Because if, 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 in fact, the big win at the end was there, that's what he was looking at. And he believed in us to, to make that happen. And uh, so, I mean, that's the thing I took away from that is that fact that he, he believed in us probably more so than anything else, that we could, you know, be true to our word and uh, make this thing a success. Now, I can tell you the first book we got, I mean, I, we got a 1.9 rating or something of that nature, 1.6, I think. And it was uh, the spring ratings came out and they were just terrible. And uh, we'd gone from like a 4.5 to uh, a 1.6. And uh, so we, you know, I remember Sanderson came in to see me and he says, this is not looking too good. I said, well, what do you do, right? So we, but we'll make it, we'll get there. You know, this thing takes time because um, Viner had a line that was always interesting to me. was He says, you know, for a station like 680 News, unless people tried it, they wouldn't necessarily get it. So um, he he compared it to like... uh, uh, a new kind of sauce that President's Choice might come out with. You, you won't know and don't if you like it unless you've had a taste of it. And so uh, our focus was to try and get people to uh, to taste it. And that was always like, you know, that was the big key for us is to get people to try it. And hopefully they liked it and stuck around after they had a chance to, to sample it for a little bit. But that was our biggest challenge in the, in the early going. And uh, so we used a line like drive for five. We were trying to get a five share and it took us a long time to get there. But uh, we got there eventually, and, uh, you know, by 2000, I mean, this, the, and certainly after 9-11, this station took off and uh, became a behemoth in the marketplace and remains that way today. That was John Hinnon, who was vice president of news at Rogers and one of the driving forces behind the launch of 680 News. We'll hear more from John in later episodes, including, as he mentioned, the profound impact of 9-11. Along with CFTR, there were two other radio stations in the Rogers portfolio in the early 1990s. They were both FM music stations, CHFI and KISS FM. They called it the three-station cluster, and the cluster manager of all three was Sandy Sanderson. He was a talented broadcaster and a pretty funny guy. He had a snare drum and a cymbal in his office. He used them to punctuate a punchline during meetings with the disc jockeys from the music stations. We'll have more on that snare drum and cymbal later. Sandy had worked in radio in New York City and had also worked in Montreal. It was during his time in Montreal that people working on an animation for the National Film Board asked him to narrate one of what is called an animated short film. That one was called Special Delivery. Here's audio from that animation narrated by Sandy Sanderson. When Alice Phelps left home that day to go to her judo class, she told her husband Ralph to clean off the front walk before he left for work. Is that all right with you? The Special Delivery animation was done so well, it was nominated for an Academy Award. And in 1978, it won the Oscar for Best Animated Short Film. Fast forward to 1993, Sandy Sanderson was working on a new special delivery, taking a music station that he'd helped build to be number one in the city and changing it to something else. 
As we know, Top 40 Music on AM was losing listeners, and Sanderson says there was a special meeting of other managers to decide what format they should move to, and a number of options were being considered. We can do oldies, we can do country, we can do all news, we can do here. So put up, write it all down on the on the blackboard, and you guys, everybody, choose one or two things that they want. So Tony Viner was there, so it was Phil Lind, and they were in a little group, and they both decided they wanted to try all news. And I, I forget which one I was in, but anyway. So they go to, there's only two of them, so they go up to Phil Lind's room, and they're having a chat. The phone rings. Tony answers it. It's Ted. He said, I want to talk to Phil. Tony says, well, I, well, I've got you here. What would you think about switching uh, 680, 680 to all news, you lose about $7 million a year for five years. Well, how would you, what would you think about that? Ted said, I'd go for that, sure. So we go back in the huddle and we all announce which, why, we, why our format is best. And Tony gets up and um, so we're just going to go all news. And everybody said, we've discussed this. It's way too expensive. And Tony said, well, Ted's approved it, so um, I think it should be okay. And um, away we went. Sandy, from your point of view, for a guy who helped to build CFTR into a successful Top 40 music station, it must have been a tough decision to leave all that behind. And then there were all the people that you had hired over the years who were really excellent broadcasters, and you had to say goodbye to them. So that was obviously an emotional time. Yeah, that was a t- that was uh, that was the tough part of June the seventh. Um, putting c- calling for a jock meeting in a different room and a table with eight guys sitting around it who have done a great job and done everything I asked them to do, and I had to fire them all without any any hint or anything, without a chance to do an air check or get, to get going on another job. Um, and uh, it was, they were, you know, they were sad, they were mad, they were afraid, you know, it was just all the, all the emotions. But um, uh, at one point, I think, it, I forget which jock it was, he said, look, I got to get back on the air. And I said, you know what, you haven't been on the air all day program is coming from the transmitter um we've had a we've been rolling tape of music uh because because of this change and he said oh, really <laughs> so um so it was um a lot of tears a lot of a lot of scary stuff you know that didn't and, and i i had um I recorded a sort of thank you, listeners, for the, everything you've done. And then I, what I thought was like absolutely brilliant, I said, no. So it's out with the old and in with the news. That was followed by the da 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 which was followed by dead air. Do you remember that? I, you know, I, it was just the worst possible thing. But that's, and then that, that started it. And here we are 30 years later. It's a, it's a mind blower, really. Yeah. Okay, Sandy, just before we go, I wanted to ask you about something you had in your office. I recall you had a snare drum and a cymbal there as well. There was a cymbal. Somebody stole it. Oh. But everybody would come in and say some, you know, try a joke. 
And I would say, oh, and me without my snare drum. And somebody gave me a snare drum. So if anybody said anything, it would go, yeah, yeah. Uh, And just to explain that sound right there, that was Sandy drumming on his dining room table. He was mimicking the old snare and cymbal rim shot that was traditionally used to accent the punchline of a joke. So in this case, we'll call it Sandy's tabletop rim shot. And we'll hear it again later on. Sandy Sanderson and John Hinnon both mentioned the name Tony Viner. Tony was the president of Rogers Radio, so the decision to change the format of CFTR landed squarely on his desk. As the old saying goes, the bucks stopped there. And there were big bucks involved in moving from music to all news. Tony says Sandy and John convinced him that it was worth taking a chance on all news. So once Tony was on side, it was his job to convince the Rogers board to agree to make the change. So I remember going to a board meeting one day and saying, uh, members of the Rogers board, I have a, a great idea. We can take a, a all-music radio station, which makes about $500,000 a year, and we could switch it to an all-news format, which I think will lose about $3.5 in the first year. And uh, took some degree of, uh, I'll modestly say, salesmanship to persuade them <laughs> that this was a good move. But I think the key really was Ted. Ted uh, was enamored of the idea that we might be a competitor to CFRB. I think everybody knows Ted's background and that the RB stands for Rogers Battery Less and that his father, who he revered, had radio station CFRB. And uh, he was truly supportive. Uh, and I think in any other context, it would have been very, very difficult because, you know, there was quite a gap, a, you know, $4 million gap, uh, and no small radio operator could have done it. So without that corporate support and agreement, uh, we, we, it would have been uh, very tough to accomplish. You know, it, was, it, it was, really was an exciting time. I was nervous and apprehensive. Uh, it, uh, I'd, I'd laid whatever limited credibility I'd had on the line at the board meeting. <laughs> I'm afraid if this hadn't worked, I, I probably, I wouldn't have been working either. So, uh, it was an exciting time. I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll, uh, Dick Smythe uh, doing the opening broadcast, explaining, uh, that we a new radio station had launched in Toronto and, and it was an all-news station and how it would work. And uh, John and Sandy worked uh, very, very hard on uh, getting all of the mechanics of the radio station right. Um, you know, so many people forecast that we didn't have a chance and, and that uh, we'd never make a go of it. Uh, but we persisted and... So slowly but surely, uh, we were, you know, we became more and more popular. Yeah, and Tony, I guess the popularity of 680 News had a lot of people, including you, breathing a sigh of relief after taking a chance in the all-news format. And Ted Rogers must have been pretty happy about that, too. Of all of the wonderful things that ever happened to me as a result of us switching formats to 680 News, 
phoning Ted for the first time to say that the ratings had indicated that our audience was larger than CFRB's was one of the best phone calls I ever had to make. And I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, kidding when Ted was absolutely giddy, giddy when I told him that uh, our cumulative audiences, audience was higher than CFRB's. I, I can't remember the exact date of when that occurred, but a couple of years. It happened fairly quickly, and uh, Ted was just so thrilled and over the course of my career, I made hundreds of mistakes after uh, we had switched formats. But I think Ted always forgave me my sins because because 680 News had finally uh, achieved dominance over CFRB. Couldn't he couldn't have been happier? That was Tony Viner, former president of Rogers Radio, who helped to champion the change for CFTR to become 680 News. One of the early news directors of 680 was Stephanie Smythe. Stephanie is one of the best at covering breaking news. She did that for years at 680 News Radio, and also when she moved on to CP24, the all-news television station in Toronto. Back in the late 1980s, I worked with Stephanie at CJCL, another AM radio station. As a bit of background, CJCL used to be known as CKFH. The FH in those call letters stood for Foster Hewitt, the longtime play-by-play voice of Hockey Night in Canada. He had sold the station to a company called Telemedia, and the new owners wanted to make a fresh start and decided to change the call letters. Telemedia's main business at the time was publishing, including the very profitable TV Guide. Before the internet, everyone needed a TV Guide to plan their television viewing. The company also published Canadian Living Magazine. So when it came to decide on the new call letters, they chose CJCL, the CL standing for Canadian Living. In the early 1990s, CJCL was facing the same issue as other AM music stations. It was losing listeners to FM. So in 1992, the station decided to move to an all-sports format, calling itself The Fan. In 1993, when 680 CFTR was about to move to the all-news format, Stephanie made the decision to leave the all-sports station and move to the all-news station. We spoke about that over coffee at her kitchen table, and I asked her how she came to make that bold decision to jump to a brand new radio station. Well, Scott, we go back before the fan, right? We go back to CJCL, which is, you know, predates the fan. So, in fact, you hired me and gave me my first job in Toronto. So, eternally grateful for that. And that was in, what, 1989, I think. Yeah, so we, um, I was doing news there, and you gave me an amazing opportunity. John Northcott worked there at the time, also remember, and of course Dan Schulman and all kinds of amazing people. So I was reporting then, right? I got these opportunities through you to work at City Hall, the courts, you name it, and I fell in love with news, which was what I was trained to do and hoping to do all along. And then the change came to become the fan. And so that was exciting to move to an all sports station. But at the same time, I'm thinking, I'm not a sports expert, you know, but I can go with this. And I joined the fans first morning show with Mike Inglis and Joe Bowen. And well, we 
kind of know what happened to that morning show. <laughs> and we move on. And, you know, as time went on, by 1993, I learned about 680 News starting and CFTR flipping the switch. And, you know, I somehow got in touch with John Hinnon. And I thought, what an amazing opportunity. You've got this all-new station, first of its kind in Canada. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Mind you, I'd just been the part of a first in Canada with the all sports. So I'm like, this is right up my alley. So uh, John thankfully hired me. I was five months pregnant with my daughter, Honor. And yeah, I was there for 10 years. And Stephanie, you had a lot of success at 680 News, eventually becoming the news director of one of the biggest radio newsrooms in the country. So what was that experience like? Well, it was such a privilege and an amazing experience to be there because we had a John Hinnon who was fantastic in that he gave us a lot of you know freedom to explore and try different things. We had the format, so that was easy to figure out. But then it was like, what do we do with all this time, and how do we make it actually you know interesting that keep keeps people listening? And back then, traffic was certainly becoming a thing, but we were trying to you know get some stories around the traffic and make people want to keep keep listening as long as possible. So, you know, at first I was an anchor working weekends and I was reporting and doing all that stuff, which was great. And then it just progressed and luck, as luck would have it, I got into a position where, you know, I could make more editorial decisions and, uh, you know, really work within what we had to make the most of every minute. And, you know, it was at a time when, you know, the National Post uh, started publishing and there are all kinds of really neat, um, what we call talker stories, you know, water cooler stories in the post. And we'd take them and we'd have fun with them, do all kinds of fun, different reporting that kind of set us apart from other news, all news stations. In other words, it didn't all have to be the agenda news, but it could be different things that weren't necessarily, you know, the lead story, but they were capturing the interest and good for conversation. So it was the kind of like the closest we could get to talk radio without being talk radio, but, you know, keeping it moving forward, new stories, new angles, different ways of looking at things. And of course, while you were news director, especially after 9-11, 680 News climbed to the very top of the ratings in Toronto. So what did that mean to you? Just work harder to keep it that way. <laughs> you know, how do we get to one plus? And uh, well, you get number one and then you have, there's various types of number one, like how many people are listening and for how long are they listening? Are they listening? So you want to just, just keep them there as long as possible and give them no reason to to tune away, but also just to keep drawing them in somehow. And I think we did that with the credibility that we earned through 9-11 and beyond, and some of what we had done before, too, with just being unconventional and talking about things that are people are talking about. Okay, Stephanie, now looking back 30 years ago, what are some of your fond memories of 680 News? Oh, they were the best days of my career. Besides working with you, Scott, in, uh, at CJCL, <laughs> absolutely the best because it was amazing people, right, inspired by who from, you know, management on down to the people we worked with um, to just watching something grow like that and, and be a part of that. That's a real sense of pride I have to have been and just so grateful and to have been a part of that and see everybody um, work toward this common goal and really have this great success that, that they can be so proud of. That was former 680 News Director Stephanie Smythe. When 680 News started, there were actually two people named Smythe. 
There was Stephanie Smythe, the eventual news director, and there was Dick Smythe, the very first voice on the all-news radio station. They would often be asked if they were related. They were not. But although they were not related by blood, they were related in spirit, both of them outstanding broadcasters and communicators. We'll hear more from Dick Smythe in the very first broadcast of 680 News at the end of this episode. And in episode two, we'll hear more from Stephanie Smythe about her time as news director and covering 9-11, one of the biggest stories of a generation. Paul Cook is the morning co-anchor and managing editor of 680. After the radio station moved away from Top 40 and rock and roll, Paul Cook was the rock that 680 was built on, and his talents have helped to keep it rolling. I know that Paul would be rolling his eyes at that effusive praise from me, so maybe that's partly why for this podcast I'm not doing the interview with him. Instead, 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc is taking the lead on that, so here now is the conversation between Paul and Amber. If I were to say to you the words 680 News, what comes to mind? Usefulness. Absolutely usefulness. I can't imagine being a resident of the GTA and leaving my house without getting into my car and turning on 680 News. It's there. Everything you possibly need to get out the door. It, it, you know, what is it like? What, how do I dress? Is my route to work going to be okay? Am I going to get to work on time? Is my world safe? And that world being whether it's global affairs or whether that have implications at home or, or, or whether it's an environmental thing happening in Toronto or crime in your neighborhood, we have everything covered at 680 News. How did you get to 680? How did that happen? I was working on the FM radio station, CHFI, on the Daner Drive-In. I was doing morning news on that program. And I was also working on the public affairs show Chronicle. Uh, When they decided to cancel Chronicle, I was uh, moved to do some stuff on 680, a couple of newscasts. So I was in the newsroom watching it in those early days, uh, watching the morning show, unfold with with a legend like Dick Smythe, right? One of the one of the big legends of radio in Toronto. And um, I would follow that morning show with a newscast at 9.30 and a newscast at 11 o'clock. So that was kind of a, uh, a soft launch for me on 680 News. And then later on, they decided that they wanted to change the format a little bit to have a co-anchor format. Because they didn't find that the, the, the three different anchors, the three-headed monster, or whatever you want to call it, uh, was connecting with the audience. So they thought it might be better if we had hosts, so to speak. So they had two, uh, two different pairs of us do audition tapes, demo tapes, to see who they thought would work, would click. So they paired Marlene Oliver, veteran broadcaster and... Uh, just an absolute legend in this market, with another uh, broadcaster named Ken Cassavoy. He had extensive experience in news and broadcasting. He was part of uh, CKO, one of the first, it was kind of a national all-news situation, not really. There were lots of interviews, but it wasn't really all news. It was news and current affairs. Um, so Ken and Marlene did a demo tape, and they put me together with, with Stephanie Smythe to do a demo tape as well. She was uh, an anchor and reporter on, on 680 at the time. 
Um, so we put those two tapes up against each other. Stephanie and I really kind of listened a lot to, to New York All News Radio, to, to Wins 1010, uh, to WCBS, and kind of pushed our delivery in that, that, that context, that spirit. And when we played it for a lot of people, they went, wow, this is really good, but they're not going to pick you guys because it just seemed too up-tempo, too fast, too much like something nobody had really heard around here before. So in the end, they picked Ken and Marlene. However, Ken was a hobby archaeologist, uh, underwater archaeologist or something, and he had some very significant vacation planned that was, you know, three weeks, four, four weeks, I'm not sure. And he said he couldn't start when they wanted him to start. So they were pretty impatient with that and wanted to get launching with this thing real fast. So they said, Cook, you're it. You're in. And, you know, I, I have to thank Ken for that because it turned out to be the job of a lifetime for me. So they put me with Marlene Oliver. So how did the dual anchor kind of change the sound of the station? For the first time in my life, I was, you know, writing news while I was pretty much reading it up, up to the second. Like, nobody was doing that at that time. You know, and, and they teach you in, in, in broadcasting school, never, ever read anything cold. We were reading copy cold all the time, whether we'd written it ourselves or whether it was coming into us. But we never had a chance to leave the control room and go out and, you know, sit there and prepare for 25 minutes for your five-minute newscast. We were, we were the show. And it was kind of, it was very exciting because... All of our careers in news, we were never the, the feature act. We were always the, you know, the, the, the bonus, the add-on to a, to a morning show where, you know, you could come in and have your five minutes of news. Here we were. We, we were the show. So we were kind of, you know, you, you accept that responsibility and you go, well, you can't just be really boring, hard news all the time. You had to mix it up and, and throw in uh, lots of, you know, whether it's for your hard news stories, obviously, but you're doing your feature stories and, and you're having some conversations and a couple of chuckles. And it was, uh, was kind of neat to be the feature act. That's funny that you mentioned that because when I came to 680, you know, I was so surprised by the fact that you could lead with a tsunami in Thailand. Like, you know, can you just talk about like the, the mentality of how you pick a lead and it's like more local interest as opposed to like a really hyper local story? Yeah, well, we also, we, we were faced to get, we were faced with, uh, a pretty big challenge at the time because CFRB was was the authoritative news voice of Toronto, and they were very serious about what they did, and so were we. But we just we because we weren't just doing news. Our meetings in the morning would would begin with what's everyone talking about, and that was the premise by which we often went to air and decided what the lead story was going to be, and you want to lead with your best stuff. And so that was, that was usually how we got our morning started. Obviously, you look at stories too and you say, what, what, is, what is the most useful story for our listeners? How can we help our listeners? But there are a lot of mornings where, where, the, where you start your lineup meeting with, what is everyone talking about? And we started doing that. And we were leading with some pretty, pretty wild stuff in those early days until 9-11, which changed everything. So the ratings were... Like, describe the ratings pre-9-11. Uh, I guess the ratings were, were sort of getting better. I mean, we ran the O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> Thanks to CNN, we got a lot of help there. Uh, the ratings were okay. They weren't, they weren't what anybody wanted them to be, especially in the early days. They really, there was some real concern about what have we done because they blew up CFTR, you know, all-hit radio, which was a mainstay in Toronto. And, 
and it was still making money, but I, and good money, but I think that they knew that, you know, obviously music didn't have a future on AM radio. So there was a race to, to pull the trigger with, all, with a lot of these AM stations and, and be the first to do all news. And, and, and we won that race. So the ratings uh, certainly went up when, when 9-11 happened. That was Morning Show co-anchor and managing editor of 680, Paul Cook, in conversation with News Director Amber LeBlanc. We'll hear more from Paul in Episode 2 about covering 9-11 and the impact it had on the radio station and the listeners. For most radio stations to be truly successful, it's crucial to have a strong morning show. Traditionally, the biggest potential audience is in the morning for radio. Most people are getting their day started, getting ready for work, getting the kids off to school. For a news radio station, it is imperative to have a strong morning show to bring in listeners and, of course, ratings and revenue. Paul Cook and Marlene Oliver were that strong morning team in the early years of 680 News. One of the threads that ran through the fabric of CFTR was CFRB. Marlene Oliver had been a trailblazer for women news anchors at CFRB. She talked about that history with 680 News reporter and anchor Mitch Burke. Now, Marlene and Mitch have an interesting history. They first met when Mitch visited 680 when he was just 10 years old. We'll have more on that meeting in a later episode. So here now in conversation are Mitch Burke and Marlene Oliver. So talk about your history with the radio world leading up to CFTR. There was there was no all-news format at the time. I know you have history with what is Toronto's oldest broadcaster, CFRB. Touch a bit on your on your pre-680 life, if you could, right before the rumbling started that there was going to be this race to be the first to bring an all-news radio format to market. So I had been at CFRB or News Talk 1010 um, for about 14 years. I started there as the traffic girl because there were actually no women who were doing newscasting. And then the CRTC uh, decided that the broadcasting world should reflect more of the real population of Toronto. And uh, a group of us were all promoted in news. There was Valerie Pringle, Wendy Mesley, um, myself. And I got promoted to doing news weekend overnights. And that was a big deal for a woman to be on overnight. Um, it wasn't welcome. There was a lot of pushback to begin with that it was a very different time. There were, there were people who were questioning why wasn't I home with my children? What was I trying to do? Could we please have a man back on the air? All those kinds of things. Anyway, times changed and, um, I ended up doing, um, I got uh, the possibility and the, the opportunity to do, uh, a public affairs show. So it was a phone-in show, and then we also would have, it ended up being two hours long. We had guests for the first hour and then phone-in for the second hour. And it was just at the time, so we started with some pretty heavy-duty guests that were on in public affairs. We we had people who were, you know, leaders in fields of health or politics or or science. But the the shift was changing to having people fight on the air. There were co-hosts and you you had that kind of well, I think this and you think this. And that wasn't my personality. Um so I was let go from that station. 
And at that point in my life, it was all, what do I do now? And 680 had gone on the air in June. And then as the, I had been let go in August and I had a lot of people who said, Oh, don't, don't, don't touch 680. Don't, there is no way there is absolutely, it's just, it's not going to make it. It's, it, it's too labor intensive. It's just, it, it, economically, it just can't fly. Um, but I believed in it and I definitely believed in the importance of news and the, uh, the role of news in, in Toronto as Toronto was growing. And, uh, John Hinnon hired me and I, uh, very quickly then moved into, to doing the morning show. Um, on 680. And at that time, when we first started at 680, we had three anchors. Much like 1010 Winds in New York, where it was holding down 20-minute programming blocks. Yeah. So the idea was that you were on for 20 minutes, and then you wrote the next newscast in the 40 minutes that you were off. Now, in my case, not only do I did I do the 20 minutes on 680, but in the 40 minutes that I was off, I ran down the hall and did the news live on CHFI, our sister station. So it all it all worked out, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And the the station was doing fine. And then we progressed to uh, February of 97, 1997, when we got the idea of doing co-hosting. We had a couple of hours in the morning. We were at that time, we were in at the station at 3 a.m. And we wrote like crazy. And we were on the air from 5 until, I think to begin with, it was 10 a.m. Um, and we had uh, the two of us, one editor, one writer. And we put together five hours of news. Now, we also had sports, business, weather, traffic, or two planes in the air. But the idea of Paul and I didn't want just two talking heads. Just to hear another voice didn't work. Paul and I knew each other, actually, from days at Ryerson, from uh, when we had been to broadcast school. And uh, we got along very well. So we knew enough to be able to have a relationship that transmitted on the air. And so people knew about our dogs and they knew about our kids and they knew what we liked and they knew what food we liked. And we knew things that we did. We would slip in these little stories that made us, I think a lot more human than just two talking heads. And there were a series of events after that and the format took off. That was Marlene Oliver, former co-anchor of the 680 morning show in conversation with Mitch Burke. One of the events that Marlene alluded to was, of course, the 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001. Marlene was on the air when the planes hit the World Trade Center. You'll hear more about that coming up in the next episode. The very first voice heard on 680 News was Dick Smythe. He was a legendary news anchor who had made his name on the Big 8 at CKLW in Windsor and then at Chum Radio in Toronto. Smythe passed away in March of 2021 at the age of 86. Back in 2013, to mark the 20th anniversary of 680 News, Smythe did an interview with 680's Jamie Pulfer. What did it mean to you to be the first voice on the station? Well, in retrospect, uh, it's kind of important. I take some pride in the fact because uh, 680 News has become a Toronto institution. I I take a bit of uh, uh, personal pride in the fact that I was the first voice to be heard. Do you remember what it was like that morning? 
I think everybody was, was a little nervous. Uh, uh, everyone was excited, though. There was a, a, a liveliness and a, and a spirit and a, te- a, you know, a team spirit. We were doing something brand new for us, and, and it, um, uh, it was kind of an exciting time. Do you remember what was going through your mind when you were opening your mouth and those first words were going out onto the air in this brand new station, this brand new venture that morning? Anytime you go on the radio, it's like going on stage. The curtain opens, the house lights dim, and, you know, world, here I am. I mean, that, that is the kind of attitude that a good broadcaster always has. And it was the same thing. It was opening night, really, except it was 6 o'clock in the morning. And now we try not to think about uh, the fact that we're talking to a million listeners. I never thought of a million listeners or a or hundred listeners. I always spoke to one person, and I think that is very important for a broadcaster. I, I had sort of a vision of who the audience was, and, and uh, I think a good broadcaster speaks to one person, even though there's hundreds of thousands listening. Again, that was Dick Smythe, the very first voice on 680 News, being interviewed by Jamie Pulfer on the 20th anniversary of the station in 2013. During that interview, Smythe also remembered that while the first newscast got off to a great start, it didn't take long for a gremlin to get into the works. I'm not generally known. It was you had a little technical mix-up. I mean, we were 6 o'clock uh, in the morning uh, in the old studio, and uh, I've forgotten just what it was, but there was a microphone disconnected. Uh, something fouled up, anyhow. It, it didn't, didn't go quite as smoothly as it should have. So in just a moment, you'll hear the audio of the launch of 680 News. And at the end of the weather forecast, you'll hear that technical glitch that Dick Smythe talked about. The last song that was played before CFTR changed to all news was a tune by the group Starship. The song was called We Built This City. That song was written in the 1980s, and it was about popular music clubs in Los Angeles being displaced by redevelopment. The chorus is, We Built This City on Rock and Roll. One of the songwriters was Bernie Toppin. He built an empire of songs in his partnership with Elton John. But the music didn't disappear, of course. In Los Angeles, the music clubs moved to different addresses. And in Toronto, the music moved to a different radio dial, the FM band. So after building a successful AM music station over a number of decades, Sandy Sanderson chose We Built This City as the last song just before we announce the end of All Hits Radio CFTR and the beginning of 680 News. Here's how it sounded at 6 a.m., June 7th, 1993. Sandy Sanderson, Executive Vice President and General Manager of CFTR. This is a sad yet exciting moment in the history of this incredible radio station. It marks the end of one era and the beginning of a new one. And like all major transitions, it involves mixed emotions. For nearly a quarter of a century, CFTR has been a powerhouse of today's music, appealing to a large and vibrant audience. Over the past several years, however, The popularity of contemporary music on the AM band has diminished, and we find ourselves in a situation that requires a change. Effective immediately, CFTR will become known as 680 News, providing Toronto with an innovative information service that has never been available in this city or in this country before. 
In the next few months, you'll become aware of how the new 680 News will work for you. And I'm confident it'll soon become part of your day. It's been a fabulous 22 years. And on behalf of the entire staff of CFTR, thank you for your generous support over the years. I'm sure the next 22 will prove to be just as exciting and challenging. But for now, this chapter has ended, and it's time to move on. Farewell to the old. Hello to the news. This is 680 News. Good morning. It's 14 degrees at 6 o'clock on this Monday, June the 7th. I'm Dick Smythe, and here's what's happening. There will be normal go transit service this morning. Service on the weekend was normal as well. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, one week left in power, said farewell at Bay Como, Quebec last night. Canada's first all-news radio station is on the air. All news, all the time. After a Sunday of meetings, Premier Bob Ray says that his goal remains the same, to trim $2 billion from provincial expenditures. Morning showers, then sunny and warm. More rain forecast for tonight. I'm Peter Gross in sports. Jack Morris was himself yesterday, unfortunately. Big upset in the French Open and a miracle finish in men's golf. This is John Hinnon with business. The Nikkei is down 38 points, gold is down $2, and the bank rate is expected to increase tomorrow. Now, traffic and weather every 10 minutes on the ones. First, for the check of 680 News, can tell traffic. Here's Russ Holden. Thank you, Nick. Good morning. Traffic around Metro just starting to fill in. Roads are a little bit wet. Some light rain persisting. And as a result, could, roads could be a little bit slippery, but no problems to tell you about so far. Accident-free TTC routes, they're all just beginning to build. Reasonable start to the morning. And we'll have another update in 10 minutes. A disturbance pass in southern Ontario is bringing cloudy skies and a chance of showers this morning. About a 30% chance. That disturbance will pass through the area quite quickly. Following that, we'll have a mix of sun and clouds for the rest of the day. Winds will be light today and a high of 24 degrees is expected. That's 2 degrees above normal. This evening, an overnight cloud on the increase. There is a rain beginning just before dawn, overnight low of 14 degrees. I'm Michelle Skinner from the Weather Network for 680 News. Yeah, and this is the technical glitch that Dick Smythe spoke about. You can hear the hiss in the background. It's called dead air. Broadcasters have recurring nightmares about dead air. It's not something you'll hear on a podcast, usually, because everything is edited and polished. But live radio is not like that. Things happen. And it's one of the many things that make live radio so exciting and exasperating at times. Obviously, the technical glitch got sorted, and 680 News has been going pretty much nonstop for 30 years. One of the legendary stories about day one for 680 News involves another of the original anchors, Larry Silver. He was a very funny and quick-witted character. He was in the newsroom when the telephone rang. He answered and spoke to someone who was very upset that CFTR had stopped playing music and was now an all-news station. The caller asked Larry, when are you going to play music again? Without missing a beat, Larry quickly replied, right after the news. And as promised, there it is again, the tabletop rim shot from Sandy Sanderson. And thanks to Larry Silver for the one-liner that would underline day one for 680 News. Who knew that one day, 30 years later, 680 would still be going strong with traffic and weather together on the ones, breaking news, sports and business reports, but it's no real surprise that 30 years are in the rearview mirror because, after all, there have been millions and millions of reminders that time is passing. 680 News Time. 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 680 news time.
in the next episode. We now take you live via CNN to New York City, where it appears we have major problems with the World Trade Center. The 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York City, September 11, 2001. It was a turning point for the world and for 680 News. That's coming up in the next episode of City News 680, 30 Years in the Rearview Mirror.